I can remember going on trips as a young boy, and um, especially if it was something that we had looked forward to for some time, and uh, there was going to be a number of activities taking place, and we would we would pack and get in the car and go, and however long it was, we would get to our destination, and my dad would sometimes say, here we are, now let's go home. And uh, of course, you know, we would say, dad, we just got here. And you know, why didn't that satisfy? Why doesn't that satisfy? It's because the trip was about more than just getting to a destination. There was more to happen. We enjoy the trip, enjoy the drive. I don't know. Some people don't enjoy traveling. I've always enjoyed traveling. Um, I guess maybe it was because the Lord knew I didn't have a choice. But um, the trip is about more than just getting to a destination. There is a sporting event that takes place annually up in Alaska called the Iditarod Sled Race, Dog Sled Race. It's one of the most unique events in the world, but what's interesting is that it did not begin as a sporting event. Each year, riders, sled riders called mushers and their dogs race more than 1,000 miles for several days through the Alaskan snow from Anchorage to Nome. For this race. But the beginning of the Iditarod sled race was something very serious. In 1925, hundreds of children in Nome, Alaska had been exposed to diphtheria. And at this point in history, children around the world died often from the highly contagious disease because widespread vaccination was not yet available. The only serum to combat the disease was far away in Anchorage, Alaska. To get the serum to Nome quickly, it was first carried by train to a town called Ninana. Then teams of mushers and their dogs strategically placed along the path carried the serum to Nome via a relay. There were more than 150 dogs and 20 mushers who were involved in the heroic efforts, which became known as the Great Race of Mercy. With passion and intensity, the mushers hurtled the 300,000 units of life-saving serum across the Alaskan countryside, arriving in Nome in only 127 hours, a record that has yet to be broken. Some died and gave their lives. Some of the dogs died and gave their lives in that effort. But by combining the right medicine with a radical effort, hundreds of lives were saved because of that. Now, while the Iditarod dog sled race, it had an amazing beginning. It is now just another sporting event. The teams race a similar path. They, it's still fraught with danger. They still tie sleds behind their dogs, but the motivation is quite different. They aren't racing to save lives anymore. As I think about the task that we have as a church, it reminds me a little bit of this race. 
the church still functions as it has for years. We still sing and pray and preach, but I wonder if we are reaching the intended destination and accomplishing the purpose that Christ left for us. That purpose we find recorded in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. It is called the Great Commission. It reads like this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission, verses that we are familiar with. The emphasis on this passage of Scripture has often been on the part that says, go into all the world. I've heard it preached as a text for mission uh, services, uh, missionary organizations, and, and it is called the sending text of the Bible. Go. The Bible tells us we're to go. Jesus tells us we're to go into all the world. The truth is, that's not the command in this verse. The command is not to go into all the world. I'll tell you what it is in just a few moments. But I'm afraid what we have done often in the church is we have put the emphasis on evangelism and conversion. And while that certainly is a necessary part of the work that God has called us to do, what we have focused on is perhaps getting people to an altar or getting people to a point of making a decision to follow Christ. And, and this has certainly been popularized by the, the revival movement of the early 20th century and the Billy Graham Crusades and things of that nature. And don't get me wrong, I have no criticism to, to cast in that direction. I, I'm thankful for those movements and those efforts and what they have done. However, the problem is if all we do as a church is bring people to a point of conversion, then we're missing a big part of what God has called us to do. You see, a big part of what God has called us to do is not just to bring people to a point of decision for Christ, but then to move them from convert to disciple where those people who have knelt at an altar and prayed to receive Christ, uh, whether it's been at an altar or not, those people who have prayed to receive Christ as their Savior, they then get up from that place of prayer and they begin walking daily with Jesus trying to learn what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. But too often, I'm afraid something is missing from the Great Commission, and the Great Commission has become the Great O Mission. You see, the truth is, there's only one command in these verses of the Great Commission. And that command is not to go, but the command is to make disciples. The command is to make disciples. 
You say, well, pastor, as I read this, it certainly sounds like there are some other commands there. It sounds like it, but if you can, if you can stay awake for a little bit for a grammar lesson, uh, let me give you a grammar lesson from this passage of Scripture. What we have here is one command that is modified by three participles. Do you remember what a participle is? Yeah, I, I know, I have to think about it too. A, a participle is a verb-sounding word, usually ending in ing, that is used to, to def- describe or define what's going on with another verb. So the verb or the command that's given to us is make disciples. So what are the, command, what are the participles that, that uh, describe the verb? The participles are go therefore, baptizing them, and teaching them. So you see, the participles tell us how we are to fulfill the command. So let's look at the first one, go therefore. Say, Pastor, that doesn't sound like a participle. It doesn't end in ing. And you're right, it doesn't, but it should. It should. Because we can more accurately interpret this phrase that says, go therefore, to say, while you are going, or as you are going. So you see, the, the idea is that everybody is going to be going. Let me explain. It's not saying that everybody is going to be going into the world specifically for the purpose of ministry. But the idea is that everybody is going to be going into the world for some reason or another. You see, going is assumed and the destination is not specific. It is simply while you are going, as you are going. I, I, th- I, I feel safe enough to pick on Brother Maurice. Uh, Brother Maurice works at the courthouse. And so to Brother Maurice, Jesus would say, Brother Maurice, as you are going to the courthouse, make disciples. Whatever job you have, wherever you happen to work, whatever you happen to do, and you say, Pastor, I don't don't really work anymore. I I don't go anywhere. Well, wherever you do go, wherever you interact with people, as you are going, The business of Christians is to be making disciples. So while you are going, make disciples. Baptizing, that's obviously a participle phrase. Baptizing. Baptizing means to immerse. And I think that based on various church traditions, a lot of us have gotten the idea that this means we get people wet while we say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are baptized. But baptizing means so much more than that, especially in this this passage of Scripture. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can... 
kind of replace the word baptizing with the word immerse, immersing them into the name, into the presence, into the reality of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that change? Does that help your understanding a little bit? Yes, we believe in baptism by, by water where you have the opportunity to stand up before your brothers and sisters and really before the world and testify, I have decided to follow Jesus. But here Jesus is talking about immersing the people who have decided to follow them into a realm where his presence is real. Where the Father, Son, and Spirit are a living, breathing reality. We can get a, a little bit more understanding by looking at that word into. Into, that's a, that's a preposition. How many of you liked grammar when you were growing up? Yeah, me neither. Um, but it's helpful. It's helpful to know some grammar. The word into is expressing movement or action with the result that someone or something becomes enclosed or surrounded by something else. Now let's think about that for just a minute. Baptizing them into, immersing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are supposed to be moving ourselves and we are supposed to be leading others to be moving into a place where we become enclosed or surrounded with the reality of the presence of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where He is a living, breathing reality in our lives. So the command is make disciples. We do that as we are going into the world baptizing them, immersing them, introducing them into a reality where God's presence is real, and then finally teaching them, teaching them. Teaching them simply means that the mission does not end with conversion. I don't know how so many times and so many places it seems to have become acceptable to have had an ex a, a conversion experience where you've prayed and, and now I'm a Christian. My ticket for heaven has been punched and then people seem to go their merry way and forget all about following God and serving Jesus and it's as if, well, okay, Lord, well, I'll see you in heaven. See you when I die. But God's word and the teaching of Scripture knows nothing about that kind of teaching. You see, when we choose to become a Christian, it's not as if we can be a Christian without being a disciple. You see, a disciple is simply a Christ follower. And you cannot be a Christian without being a Christ follower. I'm getting ahead of myself. Teaching them means the mission does not end with conversion. What are we supposed to teach? Well, Jesus tells us, teaching them all that I have commanded you. We find this, the, the essence of what Jesus has commanded in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what Jesus was talking about when he 
told his disciples to go into all the world, teach them, make, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. This is the essence of what he was talking about. To live a life free from cultivated lust. To live a life free from uncontrolled anger. To live as someone who is able to bless those who curse you. Now, let me just tell you, if you're going to learn to be a person who is able to bless those who curse you, it's going to take you some practice. It's, it's not something that's going to happen by accident, but it's going to be an, a, an intentional life, something that you purposefully step into and say, yes, I'm going to choose not just to ask God to forgive me of my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die, but I'm going to choose to ask God to forgive me of my sins and also commit to follow Jesus, to become like Him, to be a disciple, to learn how to be free from anxiety and worry. Wow, that's a big one, isn't it? This is something that followers of Christ ought to be moving towards. We ought to be moving towards. So what is a disciple? It's not necessarily, it's kind of a churchy word in our culture, disciple. Not something that you probably use in your ordinary, everyday conversation. This is where I was getting ahead of myself a few moments ago. A disciple is simply a follower, an apprentice, a learner. You may know what an apprentice is. We, we still kind of have uh, apprenticeships in our day and our culture where you can learn a trade. You can go to trade school and then you learn... Uh, how to do a certain, uh, a certain job, and then you work with somebody who knows how, who is accomplished in that task, in that job, and then you learn how to do it. And it simply means it's someone who is spending time with another person to learn how to do what they do. And gradually, as they learn, they begin practicing and they begin putting those things into practice. We as Christ followers, as Christians, we are called to be more than just Christians. We're called to be, and we really shouldn't have to say this, but in our day we have to say it. We have to explain it. We have to commit ourselves to be disciples, to be Christ followers, people who are learning to become the kind of person that Jesus would be if he was living our life. Dallas Willard said this, The disciple is one who, intent upon becoming Christ-like, and so dwelling in his faith and practice, systematically and progressively rearranges his affairs to that end. Dallas Willard was a philosopher, so he sometimes says, what, says things in ways that are hard to follow. But what he's saying is, if we have decided to be a Christ follower, we are systematically, in other words, we are intentionally 
we're doing it by a schedule or, or we're taking it by the, whatever, whatever works. I don't know about you. Some, some of you are very, some of you are good at um, staying on track with what you intend and what you mean to do. I'm, I'm not good at that. If I intend and mean to do something, I've got to be very intentional, very purposeful. I put alarms in my phone so that I will not forget and that it'll go off at a certain time and remind me to do what I need to do. Uh, I've got to get it established as a routine until it's part of my life, it's part of what I'm used to doing, and, and that's how it works for me. Friends, you've got to figure out what works for you so that you follow Jesus intentionally, systematically. If you have to say, in order for me to spend 30 minutes in prayer and Bible reading, uh, I, I've got to get it done, I've got to do it before I go to work, so then I'm going to set my alarm 30 minutes earlier. Say, oh man, earlier? Yeah, earlier. Maybe the morning is not the best time for you to do that, to have your devotions. Maybe the evening is better. But whenever, the, the point is, whenever you are awake and you can focus your energy and your attention on God and on His Word, then set aside some time during that time to spend time with God. That's part of what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus. And the reality, friends, is that there's no such thing as being a Christian who is not a disciple. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a disciple. Thank you. <laughs> if you are truly a Christian, you will begin to follow Christ. You will begin to conform your life into His likeness. It may take some people longer than it takes others. That's okay. Some people move and learn quickly. Some people are slow learners. That's okay. That's all right. But the point is the trajectory. You are moving towards conformity to the likeness of Jesus Christ. So why does it matter? And I'm almost done. Why does it matter? Well, there's a verse that the Apostle Paul gives us in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We, we like Romans 8, 28, don't we? Most of us know Romans 8, 20, 28. Oh, that's such an encouraging verse, especially when, when trouble is coming into our world and we're having problems. And we quote Romans 8, 28, and well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ may quote it to us. And Romans 8, 28 says, For we know that all things work together for good. Oh, it's so encouraging. You know, it was so encouraging. To know. I, I think of when I was a boy and our house burnt down, and people, some people would say, well, all things work together for good. And and they would remind us of the story of Job and how Job lost everything, but he ended up getting it all back twice as good in the end of the story. Did you know that's part of the book of Job? It, it is. Job had a horrible time, horrible life, lost everything, his family, and all, but he, it all got, he got it all back twice as good at the end of the... And that's, that used to be in my mind, that's what it meant, that all things work together for good. 
Do you remember in like the, the late 70s, early 80s, there was this real big conspiracy idea that there was back masking on rock and roll records that if you played them backwards that you would hear hidden messages, subliminal messages. And, and did you know that there's back masking on, on country music records too? You know, most kind of, a lot of country songs are about you know losing your losing your wife and losing your truck and losing your friend. And if you play country music backwards, you get your truck back and you get your wife back and you get it all back. Yeah. Some of you just needed a minute to wake up. Okay. All right. Pardon me for that diversion. Did you know that when Paul says, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit in Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, who are called according to His purpose. He's not saying that everything's going to work out fine in the end. If you have losses, you'll, you'll, you'll recoup those losses. That's not what He's saying. We've got to go on to verse 29, because verse 29 tells us the purpose that God has. For all things work together for the good of them who are called according to His purpose. And His purpose is that we would be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is the good that God is wanting to work in me and in you. That we become like Jesus. So when we pray, when we go through difficulty and hard times and we, and we claim this promise, oh God, you said all things would work together for good, that means you are praying, you are seeking, oh God, would you use this to make me more like Jesus? That's what God wants. That's what God wants. And friends, ultimately, that's what will matter in the light of eternity, what will matter in the light of eternity is not that we recoup physical or material losses that we may have experienced here or that we regain health that we had lost. It's not going to matter when we stand before God. But friends, what will matter is how much like Jesus we have become. And when we stand before God on Judgment Day, it will be because of the grace of God and the love of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. So I don't want to give you the idea that it's because of our efforts. It is because of grace. But as I've told you recently, grace is opposed to earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. What God calls us to as Christians is that we then become co-laborers with Him. By grace, we engage with what God is trying to do in our hearts and lives to become like Jesus. Another reason this matters is that Christians represent Jesus to the world. Did you know that? Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that, that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. In other words, the world ought to be able to look at you and I and see something of Jesus in us that draws them, that says, hey, what is it that makes you different? 
we represent Jesus. And, and the final reason that this really matters is that it was the command of Christ. It is the command of Christ. Not just that we get a stamp on our passport to heaven, but that we engage in following Christ to become like Him. Most of you will know who this is, Mahatma Gandhi. When the missionary E. Stanley Jones met with Gandhi, he asked him, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? You know what Gandhi said? He replied, oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ, as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Pretty sobering words, isn't it? You see, Gandhi's closeness with Christianity began when he was a young man practicing law in South Africa. Apart from being attached with the Christian faith, he intently studied the Bible and the teachings of Jesus and was also seriously exploring becoming a Christian at one time, which led him to the discovery of a small church gathering near where he lived. But sadly, when he went to visit this church, it was full of racially bigoted people, and because of his ethnicity, they turned him away at the door and actually threatened, if he did not leave on his own, threatened to have him thrown out. And after that took place, Gandhi never again pursued becoming a Christian. To another Christian missionary, Gandhi once said, to live the gospel is the most effective way most effective in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Not just preach, but live the life according to the light. I'm still quoting Gandhi. If, therefore, you go on serving people and ask them also to serve, they would understand. But you quote, instead, John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you ask them to believe it, and that has no appeal to me, and I am sure people will not understand it. The gospel will be more powerful when practiced and preached. A rose does not need to preach. It simply spreads its fragrance. The fragrance is its own sermon. The fragrance of religious and spiritual life is much finer and subtler than that of the rose. What was Gandhi talking about? He's talking about people who actually follow Jesus enough that they start to look and behave like Him. Not just people who name the name of Christ and then go on their way living and acting like they always have and they become a blight on the church and on the name of Jesus Christ. I'm out of time, but can I tell you just quickly something I've told you before? I used to work with people who would tell off-color stories and use bad language 
And then anytime the conversation turned around towards religion, they somehow wanted you to know that, oh, yes, they're a Christian too. If you tell off-color stories and use bad language, could I just encourage you, if you also claim to be a Christian, would you please just keep that to yourself? Don't, don't cast a poor reflection on the church and on Jesus Christ. If you're going to name the name of Christ, then by all means, please ask God to help you as much as possible to be conformed to His image and to His likeness. Oh, friends, I'm not saying that we're all perfect and that we don't fall short. One of the, I'll tell you, you want to know one way that the people you work with and the people you live with will know the difference, will know that you've really got something genuine, is if when something happens, you go off or you say something you shouldn't and God the Holy Spirit convicts you, you go back to that person and you make sure whoever was present to, to view that or to see that or to hear it, make sure they know too. You go back to them and you say, I'm really sorry, but I shouldn't have acted that way or I shouldn't have said those words. Would you please forgive me? That'll make people begin to recognize that there's something different about you and about me. Forgive me for taking so long this morning, but I have just a few more things that I want to share with you just quickly. We're going to begin, Lord willing, this program of discipleship. Uh, Lord willing, next, next Sunday or the Sunday after, within the next week or two, as the Lord helps us. We have discipleship journals, and uh, we will make them available for everybody that wants them. It's your first 50 days with Jesus and you might say, Pastor, I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, that's okay. This will simply help us all to get on the same page. And I would like as many of you that are willing to walk through this with us as a church to go through it together. You see, the point about all of us doing, uh, doing this and getting on the same page is that you will then know how to help somebody else. And you see, if I'm the only one that can be a disciple maker in our church, how long will it take us to multiply disciples? It'll take quite a while. But if I can multiply disciples, and you can multiply disciples, and you can multiply disciples, if we can all become disciple makers, then friends, we can begin to see God bless and help our church. So this is just a brief introduction. This is coming. I wanted you to know about it ahead of time. Uh, it will begin, Lord willing, hopefully next Sunday. If not next Sunday, we'll make it available to you the week after. If you want to check it out, you can go to newstartdiscipleship.com, and uh, you can look at that uh, in the meantime and get a little introduction to what this is all about.